welcome to Episode 8 of Some Pulp. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and tonight I'm joined by Michael Edwards and Justin Edwards. What a surprise. I'm back. (laughs) Tonight we're going to uh, go with the theme, Robot Parade from Klaatu to the Six Million Dollar Man. It's uh, my privilege again to uh, determine the, the topic of the evening, and and uh, once again, we're in the 50s and 60s, and I want to talk about robots. And I consider uh, those decades the golden age of speculative discourse about robot-themed fiction. We'll go across some uh, some terrain that includes uh, favorite TV episodes, favorite films, and uh, any related robot-type issues, distinctions between robots and androids, and that sort of thing. As uh, as we uh, reminisce, let's do it. Great. Well, I'll start. I want to start with. Uh, I guess I would say it is my favorite movie. Uh, certainly, my favorite black and white movie, and it's not one I saw when it came out because it uh, it debuted in uh, theaters uh, the year before I was born, 1951, and it's the majestic, uh, metaphor laden. Uh, robot picture known as The Day the Earth Stood Still. And I want to quickly say it's not that one, the one that came out in the uh, 90s, but it's it's my version of the play and the story, because it did appear as a radio play that same year as uh, Hollywood was uh, interested in, in getting a, a, a double bolt of uh, interest in their products. And uh, Michael Rennie, who plays the uh, lead in uh, The Day There Stood Still, the 1951 version, also does the uh, the radio play, and uh, that will be in our show notes, and it's uh, it's fun to, uh, to listen to. Uh, this is a movie that I end up seeing as a TV show when uh, NBC debuted Saturday Night at the Movies, and uh, I saw it for the first time. Uh, on that uh, program, and I found it utterly fascinating and introduced me to uh, my f- my favorite robot, Gort, and uh, the favorite uh, kind of confrontation. It's uh, rarely done anymore, uh, where the aliens come to save us, but of course immediately we treat them very uh, evilly uh, by uh, shooting the uh, Savior who has come to give us uh, insights into health and welfare, and also to uh, quarantine, using a phrase that C.S. Lewis used to describe Earth, quarantine it from uh, uh, spreading our wickedness uh, galaxy-wide. And was this the uh, first time you had run into robots that you remember? Had you read about robots and then finally you were seeing them on screen for the first time and that's why it was so special? Or Yeah, I think so. Although I did have some uh, toys, uh, some of the uh, classic tin robots that I still collect. Uh, and then one Christmas, uh, I think it was maybe 1960, 1961, uh, Ideal Toys brought out Robot Commando who uh, interestingly was billed as the uh, the invader from outer space who's come to defend Earth from alien attack. And uh, that, that little toy, it wasn't so little, it was pretty big uh, from, from my eyes. It shot missiles out of its head. 
And so, <laughs> and uh, on top of that, um, it it was by remote control, and it had a, a kind of a wired hand controlled uh, feature where I could. Uh, get him to move so he could, you know, go through a carpet and uh, and uh, go around the corner, uh, and then he could shoot his rockets. And uh, the uh, I I was endlessly entertained by that. And I think probably until I uh, went off to college, it was still in my basement in Akron, Ohio. And I uh, always enjoyed visiting with him when I came home. Th- th- this this movie was the one that that kind of brought all of my associations and expectations and uh, and science fiction imagination to, to the forefront of uh, the rest of my childhood and adolescence. And so thinking about the way robots are presented in, in early cinema and TV shows, um, was there a predominance to the robots gone wrong that are horrifically killing humans? Or was it more predominantly the misunderstood... Um, benefactor robot that humans just weren't ready for and we end up destroying it even though it's a good thing well to, to me they were a counterpart of uh the flying saucer movie which uh, always represented uh, uh alien technology at its height and uh you know the the, uh, the alien beings may or may not be humanoid but they're uh their technology, which came in the form of mostly uh, mechanistic creatures or, or uh, so, some kind of intelligence that was uh, not uh, corporeal, not not part of the the, the humanoid uh, uh, alien being. Although uh, much later on, by by mid sixties, the aliens got more sophisticated because uh, uh, special effects crews and and uh, uh, Hollywood in general got got more and more adept at uh, at creating uh, creatures, um, but uh, uh, the the robots tended to be somewhat mindless slaves of their their alien uh, producers, and uh, and they were you know basically weapons. Uh, but that that tends to change uh, over time, uh, where where they have a little more independence uh, and they can. Be befriended, or can be uh, convinced to to uh, take an alternate path during their their sojourn on Earth, and uh, I think that mainly comes into play in the '60s. But during the '50s, uh, it's bad news that there are robots on that flying saucer because they're not coming to uh, help anybody or convey any message of peace. Although that is the message of uh, the day the Earth stood still, and uh, that's that's sort of what. Uh, uh, sets it apart uh, right at the beginning because the, the I think the earliest credible uh, robot figure is the one again in Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and uh, she's uh, evil, and uh, you know uh, you know not not a savory or comforting presence at all, and I think that kind of dominates people's images of, uh, of of robots, and and also there's always the threat as soon as robots comes in the vocabulary, I, th- I think it. It comes into our vocabulary, according to the uh, Sci-Fi Encyclopedia, in a uh, uh, European, uh, Eastern European play called R.U.R. or R.U.R. and uh, okay. robots are named as robots in, in that play and in translation. But um, you know, robots are those who are coming to take our jobs. They're coming to replace us, uh, and uh, that that becomes kind of a predominant theme. 
uh, I think, in the 50s. And then 60s TV, I think, tends to uh, divert from that theme. Uh, I, I, uh, I believe we may have talked about, uh, uh, in, a, in a recent episode, we talked about the uh, episode I, Robot, that appeared in Outer Limits, in which uh, uh, a robot is serving his master, his creator, and accidentally kills him, and he goes into uh, a court of law, he's judged guilty, and then he is uh, being led to his execution. And during the uh, the flight from uh, from his execution, he saves a little girl from a runaway car, and uh, that, that's sort of the, the, the theme of that is, you know, don't misjudge your robots, they could be here to help. And that becomes more of a predominant uh, theme in the in 60s. But uh, this this one, I think, sets the stage for all sorts of movies and, and uh, science fiction themes. And uh, the, uh, the, the character, the, the, the robot, Gort, is uh, a menacing uh, character in and of himself because he has a... a uh, uh, a metal body or, or some sort of substance that, that allows his metallic features to be uh, malleable, somewhat like the, uh, the Terminator robots get, get to be uh, in, a, in a couple of their uh, With teeth. episodes. <laughs> but uh, kind of a Cyclops figure where his, uh, his uh, metal head opens up and it's just a beam of pure destruction, a kind of laser beam. And uh, it's it's benevolent to the extent that initially he's just trying to make weapons uh, ineffective. He he melts them, or he he you know, he sends them to their uh, 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 trash heap because they're not usable anymore in tanks and so forth. If you're on the tank, that's bad news. But if 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 you let Gort go, he's just going to get rid of all the the possible weapons, uh, and that's really why he's sent with Klaatu. On this mission is because he's going to take, you know, he's he in some ways. Uh, I was just thinking about this. Uh, as odd as it seems, it's almost like, you know, a gunslinger walking into a uh, a saloon in the old west where the sheriff gets up and says, "All right, I'm, I'm, you know, give me your six shooter." This is what Clatu is doing. He's he's you know uh, he's telling Gort to you know take their weapons, and uh, and that's what he does. And that, that's almost reminding me of um, some of the free will philosophizing of C.S. Lewis about, could you imagine a world where when you tried to swing a stick or throw a rock that it turned into jelly and now couldn't hurt someone? Um, would there be any true freedom in that kind of universe? And you know, if Gort is able to completely disarm everyone from ever harming anyone, is that like the same question? Well, I'd, uh, actually, I'd, I don't think in this case it is because... Uh, uh, you know, Gord has been sent it, basically to uh, remove Earth's ability to destroy other worlds, which it's you know, uh, uh, you know the Doomsday Clock as we we talk about it now. Uh, basically, he's justified. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. has come to say, you guys are pretty close to being annihilated, and I brought my robot friend. My my sheriff to come and uh, basically take your weaponry away from you while we get ready to basically destroy your your planet. However, <laughs> I've also come to give you an option, and uh, you know the great theme of this in this Cold War, you know post World War II uh, 
episode of, of human history is it's the threat of these aliens coming to impose law upon Earth that gets this, the Soviet premier and the French president and so on and so forth to get together for a real United Nations. And, uh, you know, it, this, this is, you know, sounds like a, a theme that is well-worn, but actually I would credit this movie with generating this theme of, of peace because a greater threat than your own human aggression is uh, awaiting us and there are people watching us and, uh, you know, uh, many of the of this of this flying saucer type movies uh, were were kind of themed that way. They weren't here to be uh, our uh, conquerors as much as they were to be our destroyers because we got too full of ourselves in the universe and you know threatened other life. Yeah, it's hard to put it in perspective with just in light of the atomic bombs happening like just a few years before, like still so fresh. Um, to separate the two as wanting to be a commentary, you know, um, that, you know, even in my brief, you know, I've, there was like a few days where I was seriously, for some reason, got really obsessed with reading about those bombings and the culture of the time and, and kind of the protests and the like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it discussions. And then they're like, no, we're going to do it. And then we did it like with, you know, all that happening kind of was still the taste in our mouths and, you know, thinking of, of tackling those issues of, you know, we have the power to destroy ourselves and we've, you know, we've already started showing what that looks like. And um, it's hard to separate the two knowing that it's so closely in time still. I was wondering uh, when Star Trek got on board with this. I know in The Next Generation they have Data and Android, which we can talk about Um I think he's an android. Um, but did the original Star Trek series, I mean, presumably it dealt with robots plenty, um, but they they didn't have a, an actual cast member, crew member, did they, that was a robot? No. No, I, I, uh, I remember reading that, that uh, Roddenberry was interested more that the crew be human and Vulcan and other species without the... Uh, uh, the complication of bringing in android life, although there are plenty of other kinds of, of threats and uh, and alien uh, life force, uh, you know, outside the Enterprise, and and more of that certainly when uh, when Star Trek uh, comes back to TV. But uh, I, I don't think he was as interested. He was interested in the computerization of technology and of uh, space travel, and so you have the you know. The uh, you know Jim Kirk in intoning you know uh, you know check these coordinates and and you know the, the computer voice uh, you know speaks to the captain and speaks to Spock and so forth. But I, I don't Siri. that was wasn't a, yeah that wasn't a major uh, a major theme and uh, and I'm I'm glad it it, it wasn't because um, you know he he basically wanted problem solving to be what the humanoids had to deal with rather than there being a, a super robot or, or some other imposing threat. Well, Day of the Earth is still definitely, you know, gives us, I guess, one flavor of kind of robots and how they relate to us. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of other examples and kind of experiences that we can all have with robots. Um, 
what other like early ones? I guess from television is what I'm curious about because I just I just feel like I haven't seen early television robots. You know, recently. Well, uh, it's in a series or or anthology TV. So uh, um, Twilight Zone has a has at least one prominent uh, robot themed. Uh, Episode and that was a baseball episode of all things, and it was <laughs> the cr- creation of a, uh, a robot named Casey, who's a pitcher, uh, and he is humanoid and it has more of an an- androidish kind of uh, flavor to it. But he is very stiff; he's very boxy in his motions, uh, and you know, the the theme of it is that uh, you know robots need a heart in order to really function like human beings, and you know that that goes back you know. We we shouldn't have skipped over it. Um, the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz, uh, where he's in search of of a heart. That's part of his uh, his mission. Uh, yeah, of uh, course. With uh, with with Oz, but uh, you know, the the mighty Casey is somebody who debuts as a uh, pitcher who can strike anybody out. He sees the distress of the batters, and by the end of it, Rod Serling is telling us that uh, when when uh, Casey receives a heart transplant. Uh, he ends up not being able to strike out hitters and just throws them all fastballs right down the middle, and they all hit hit doubles and triples and home runs, <laughs> which makes him obviously ineffective and no longer the uh, the uh, glory of uh, of Major League Baseball anymore. But um, he also does one with Lee Marvin playing a mechanical boxer, uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, another kind of sad tale. Uh, and in this one, um, the mechanical boxer uh, also obviously looks very hum- humanoid, although his his characteristics are still very mechanical and boxy. And uh, what happens is uh, Lean Marvin, the manager, has to, when, when the robot's damaged, he has to go out and fight as in place of the robot. And uh, it doesn't end well for him. And, uh, you know, that, that's another theme that's come up, you know, more recently in film where uh, a human has to replace the robot in order to, con- you know, continue the battle or, or finish the fight or, or whatever it is with, uh, you know, whatever the filmmaker, filmmaker's vision is. And it also is part and parcel of the RoboCop series that uh, we got to enjoy at a certain point until they started making, you know, robot cop robo three robo four and really after they after the first one they're kind of all (laughs) terrible um i did watch the remake or not the remake the reboot on netflix oh no yeah i saw it was just got there it was painful for me oh no yeah i learned my lesson trying to watch the uh total recall reboot um but in light of kind of growing up with robots i you know i just have to me, my earliest memories are definitely, you know, obviously a Star Wars experience. You know, you can't escape that George Lucas, you know, really embraced the, this idea of the robot as the helper, the droid. You know, they we're going to use them to, you know, do the farming and, you know, drive and re- reboot the cars and and such like that. Um, where, did you find, you know, kind of history and in, in even Lucas's influences there to come to that conclusion for robots? Because they don't have AI robots that are, like, threatening in the Star Wars universe. They're all kind of slaves, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, uh, I I would take a step back and say, uh, you know, George Lucas had done the movie THX 1138 with, uh, you know, human characters, but there also was kind of a robot police force, which was very menacing. And I had seen that movie, uh, which uh, I think precedes American Graffiti in his timeline and uh, may have been based upon uh, a short movie he did. Uh, I'm not clear of it as a, a USC film project as a student. Um, and then he he basically has a has a pilot of it, and then he's able to make the the, the, the movie. And I, I I thought that was one of the most fascinating um, uh, movies I, I saw as a, a budding adult. I, I I saw it in New York City and. Uh, there's there's everything going on in that movie that that if you, if you later see Star Wars you see although that's uh, kind of a, a, a dystopian world uh, it, uh, it its use of robots and and uh, you know mechanical uh, medicine and doctors dispensed through a uh, basically a uh, uh, confessional like you would you would go to a priest this in this case you're going to uh, a uh, a, a robot doctor, in effect, and, uh, uh, and he, it, he dispenses basically drugs that keeps the the, the population sedated, and uh, uh, so I, I think he's using some of his expertise and some of his uh, uh, science fiction imagination when he, when he gives us C three PO, who's the uh, initially I you know he's he's uh, portrayed as the uh, the ultimate translator. And you know nothing particularly heroic or adventurous about him, and and they get self conscious. You know what? A third of the way through the for the uh, uh, first Star Wars episode, and of course I I, I liked all that, and I was uh, uh, pretty energized that George Lucas was doing it because I, I I had known what he had done with that that previous movie. Definitely, and I I was just watched this uh, this documentary going clear about the. Um Church of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard's start as a sci-fi fiction writer. Um, and he made most of his, you know, money and income before he decided to try writing Dianetics was for the science fiction magazine Analog. And I don't know if you had read that as a kid growing up too in the fifties and sixties, or just seen it. You know, constant robots on the cover. I guess. Yeah that that was also. Uh, uh, an image builder for me because my uh, my grandfather I grew up living behind them my uh, my grandparents um, he got all those magazines and he got popular mechanics he got popular science who are always selling their their contents based upon the the uh, image on the cover and uh, and you know those those fantasy and science fiction magazines. Uh, which also fueled even uh, you know C.S. Lewis's imagination. He he had access to uh, the American uh, science fiction pulp uh, magazines, and of course the the picture was always better than the stories, <laughs> and uh, uh, and they usually used robots again as menaces, and they were usually uh, either marching someone off to prison, you know, some some sort of you know galactic prison. Or they were, you know, carrying a helpless female. Uh, you know, the the uh, poster that appeared in the theaters for uh, the uh, day the Earth stood still has Gort carrying this female off, and there, it doesn't appear at all in the movie. It has nothing to do <laughs> yeah. with the movie. 
but it, it no doubt sold some tickets. And um, uh, so, so those pulp, pulp magazine covers and even the so-called uh, popular mechanics, popular uh, science magazines also uh, traded on, on that, that theme too. And, uh, and, and the thing about those robots was they weren't sentient. Uh, they can only, within a, you know, a short range of ob- obedient tasks, uh, perform any function uh, until much later where they're given you know, more and more tasks. And, and then the threat becomes, when do the robots rebel? You know, when do they become at least somewhat self-conscious enough to know that they are, they've been made slaves and, uh, you know, they, they have a, a, a brain, so to speak, that becomes independent. And, uh, you know, that, that theme is explored later. Uh, the, the other thing about uh, uh, robots by mid-60s is they're, they're being used as sort of spare parts. And so uh, a TV show that was extremely popular in its first couple of years and then sort of faded off was The, the Six Million Dollar Man, uh, with uh, the character Steve Austin, played by Lee Majors, who's who's basically you know barely alive, and uh, the the theme song, the opening s- sequence for every episode is "We Can Rebuild Him," and uh, I, I think it's still on the works for uh, uh, the eight billion dollar version of it, the, the movie version of it to be made, uh, directed by by uh, Peter Peter Berg, which. Uh, Gets gets me enthused about it because I think Peter Berg's a sort of character, uh, sort of uh, director, and I think he's he I think he's also playing in in the movie uh, with Marky Mark. Um, he's one who respects science fiction, and um, you know, had, had, you know, early on had made one of my favorite uh, time travel movies. Which one was that? <laughs> <laughs> Begs the I, question. I knew <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to insert that into it. But that uh, needs to be an episode it's, itself. Uh, it's, uh, late late for dinner, I think, is the title. Yes. And, uh, Looking at his list. So we've talked about a couple different of the the robot tropes: the the slave, the the sort of basically alien outsider that's either here to save us or destroy us. And uh, I, th- I guess. Um, this might be sort of part of the slave category, but there, there's a huge history of the robot helper, and we just talked about it a bit with Star Wars. But I mean, we we can't skip past the Jetsons, can we? <laughs> yeah, the Jetsons are are an interesting uh, production because, in some ways, they're, they're they were intended to be parallels to the Flintstones. You know, the, the Flintstones is you you go back in time, and uh, you know you have a whole set of building blocks to, to, to make jokes uh, out of in, in this cart- cartoon about, uh, you know, square wheels and that sort of stuff. <laughs> but the Jetsons are going the other direction, and you have uh, people, you know, living on asteroids and, you know, ha- you know the, the dream of flying cars or, you know, jetpacks, if we were promised jetpacks. <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, they, they're portrayed, although, you know, the Flintstones were far and away much more popular, and the Jetsons... I think maybe ran two, three seasons. Uh, you know, they revived them for a couple of uh, movies in the in the late nineties. Which 90s. is weird. Yeah, yeah. They only had a couple seasons because my childhood of Cartoon Network makes it seem like there are just millions of episodes of the Jetsons. Ah, uh, syndication. 
Yeah, there might, there might have been 25 per year, and you, you might have gotten up to, I don't know, 75 episodes to repeat. But, uh, you know, my favorite, because uh, I really couldn't stand George Jetson. <laughs> yeah, uh, it always strikes me as just annoying, like, ah, eh, Jetsons, no thanks. Pretty much. Was, uh, was their robot made? Which yeah. I have a I have a, re- a replica of in my collection of tin robots. What's so, her name uh, again? Uh, I, I I'm thinking it's Rosie. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, she's always the the witty, smart one of the family who uh, you know directs everybody to to the the the, the happy ending or the uh, the less uh, problematic ending for one of the. You know the spouse. I, I I can't remember her name, but uh, you know is she the uh, same role as the maid in the Brady Bunch? No, no. <laughs> she she was much more uh, caustic than uh, Ann B. Davis ever ever could be. Yeah, because she 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 has the the attitude of Alice. <laughs> yeah, I'm the smartest person in the room, and I'm not even a person. You know, basically that was yeah. her her attitude. Yeah, totally. So yeah, that, that, you know that that was um, a minor uh, and and fairly trivial interest of mine. Uh, you know when it was on, and I was aware that it was on. But I, you know my my interest was uh, you know taken by these metal creatures, and I, I you know I, I loved uh, uh, you know the early uh, seasons of Lost in Space, which had Robbie the robot. Uh, he wasn't called that, but that that was who he was. He, he he's the only robot in history I know of, um, uh, certainly of that era, who who was recognized by his sort of his Screen Actors Guild Robbie the Robot name, and he he appears in a lot of different movies and things, and he's clearly Robbie the Robot who made his first appearance in Forbidden Planet as kind of this police robot. Um, but uh, in in Lost in Space, he was also uh, not he was not only resourceful, but he was also someone who was pitted against the evil Doctor Smith. And you know, Lost in Space is a kind of Swiss Family Robinson uh, story in which uh, you know the the Robinson family goes off into space, and uh, Doctor Smith, who is always undermining everything that the uh, the Robinsons want to accomplish, once they get lost in space, find their way home predominantly uh and and Robbie the robot who just appears as the robot uh is is always in uh, you know a real uh, joust of uh, of uh, exchanges with with Dr. Smith who's a buffoon and uh who's there for comic relief and 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 Robbie uh, always takes him on as somebody who who's not going to win the day as long as I'm around you know me, the robot. So again, here here's a robot who who is not sentient exactly, but he has enough data uh, inside him that he he knows when humans are behaving badly, and uh, he wants to curtail the damage they can do. Uh, and you know his his famous line is "Danger, danger, Will Robinson." Yep. And and uh, that's always quoted. And I guess we did it again in this uh, this episode. <laughs> Though I've never known the context of that, even though I've heard that so many times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be avoided is the Lost in Space movie that they did, the Matt LeBlanc one. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, and was the, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I just thought of another like trope of at least from my childhood with robots is robots were a safe way to show extreme violence in cartoons. And so, you know, when in doubt, if you don't want a PG-13 or R-rated cartoon for kids, just make the enemies robots, and then you can chop arms off and knock heads off, and it's just pieces of metal, it doesn't matter. And, you know, very prominently, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, they're not fighting other ninjas, they're ninja robots. So Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I always wonder that too. And then the movie, they're people, and you're like, wait... Yeah, Aren't they robots, and then they and don't like, kill don't anyone. And you're like, "Why does Leonardo have swords? He cannot use them as swords. <laughs> you know, all of them except the bow like, and the nunchucks, yeah. I guess." And I mean, that's that's carried through even into to more modern, like the 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 newer trilogy of Star Wars, the the Phantom Menace, as the droid army, because you can completely destroy them and as comical or grotesque as possible, because it's not people. And uh, so in that way, maybe we're dehumanizing robots. Well, maybe they weren't humanized in the first place, but you know, they're, they're useful when you don't want to use a foreigner or um, if, if cultures made it so like, what are the safe villains? Like you can do a period piece with Nazis. Um, you can pick a, a tyrant and his army, but for the most part, you, you don't want to just portray people as evil and kill a billion of them like you could in the 80s and <laughs> And before, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, I I was oblivious to there being robots or not robots in the Teenage Ninja Turtle cartoons or or movies. I uh, I only remember the first one, and uh, so I, I I can't comment on that. But I, I do want to comment on a couple of, of things that I uh, I remember from the '60s, and the most prominent being uh, visiting the World's Fair in New York City. Uh, it's a it's a World's Fair that ran two years, and it was uh, you know basically uh, on the side of uh, what was uh, then called Shea Stadium, and of course not, now the New York Mets play in a different baseball stadium. But it, it was it was built on the site in Flushing Meadows, New York, and that was where the first inkling I had that was not in a movie but was in real life, where companies like General Electric and General Motors. And um, you know, a, a lot of Japanese uh, companies who were who were you know, building pavilions um, were demonstrating the future of human enterprise and human labor, and it, it was clearly a theme that robots of some sort, whether they were human or not, they were going to be the the, the future of you know labor saving. Uh, and uh, you know the, the creation of leisure time because they were going to do the literally heavy lifting of industrialization and they were going to be the, the the saviors of the uh, underdeveloped as it was thought of the underdeveloped world uh, where the industrialization had had not come and of course industrialization was you know thematically a, a good thing you know what's uh, what's good for uh, General Motors is good for America was a, was a theme of the time and. And now has become a, a, a kind of uh, sardonic comment upon the 60s and 70s and the, mis- the military-industrial complex and all that. But here were well-built machines who were, were portrayed to me on these, these you know, Disney-like rides. Uh, you know, the, the self-driving car was, you know, kind of a robot. And, uh, you know, the, the ability to get into space 
which was still a, a coming dream after you know JFK had said we're going to put a man on the moon, and you know hoping to uh, you know beat the Russians to to space travel. Uh, you know that that was thematically important uh, to this World's Fair, and uh, you know I, I remember being impressed with what machines could be built to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that echoed throughout my, uh, early, uh, adolescence and into, to, to later, uh, adolescence into adulthood where, yeah, technology, that, that can, that can save us from lots of things. And, uh, I've, I've since, you know, reduced my enthusiasm for technology as savior, but I still, you know, in the back of my mind is we'll find a way out of this because, well, look at these wonderful machines I saw in 1964 could do. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that's a theme in not all, but a lot of robot-type sci-fi um, is about transcending our limitations, whether it's overcoming our, our human nature or just literally surviving in a, a worse environment or worse conditions um, through the use of robots. And uh, yeah, lots of great examples there. Um, or fears of of the alternative, like the Terminator future, where um, AIs will destroy us, but also we've been able to reprogram one through our ingenuity to actually avert the destruction. And it's just um, amazing drama there with very well done. Do you see any new trends in in robot uh, stories now, or have we kind of plateaued? Um, I know, um, unfortunately, the TV series Almost Human didn't really pan out. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know why it didn't, except it, it like uh, it was a Fox TV show and their track record with Firefly and several other shows that I enjoyed uh, and you know had to to race to see before they they went off the air. Um, well, well, one thing is a cable phenomenon uh, that needs to be mentioned. That is a mystery science theater. Uh, uh, 3,000, and uh, they're, they're robots, uh, which are there just for laughs, and, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Gypsy or Tom Servo. Or uh, Crow. Or Crow, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who are basically... Thanks for setting that up. <laughs> sitting, sitting in the, you know, a... Uh, a, a theater watching these terrible movies that, uh, you know, as, as they're sort of abandoned or exiled into space uh, on the, uh, the, the the spaceship they're on, uh, they have to watch. And uh, TV's Frank is, is part of that. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I think uh, they, they filled a vacuum because to me you can never have enough uh, time travel movies or robot movies. And... Uh, I, uh, you know, I would I would see them all, and I would see them uh, uh, again and again, uh, almost no matter how badly they're done. If only so I could play the role of Tom Servo or Crow in, in yeah. defaming them while we're watching them. But uh, you know, trends. Um, you know, you know, Star Wars has captured the the, the sort of robot narrative uh, until recently. Where there have been a number of films, uh, several of whom uh, I, I've not seen, several of which I have not seen. See, I'm already granting <laughs> sentience and human human nature <laughs> to these films. robots. <laughs> but uh, you know, trends. I, I think uh, more more uh, recently, uh, it's the the robot as menace and the and the joke line. You know, uh, we're, we're going to serve our robot overlords and that sort of stuff. Um, so. You know, to uh, 
to treat the theme authentically, I think uh, you've, you've got to have a plot that takes them seriously and takes them straight. And they're not just uncomplicated threats, but, but you know, they need to be part of um, human beings trying to figure out how to live in a world in which there are robots and they are relatively itinerant. They're, they're free. They don't just live in a factory and they don't just get turned on or, or, or wound up at the beginning of a work uh, uh, day. And, and, uh, and they have to be more than threatening you for taking your job away and, and so forth. There are there are a few like there. Yeah, um, I'm I'm just thinking of when you mentioned the the itinerant or the free robots. Just uh, thinking of iRobot, which was for me a disappointing film. Even though I'm an Alex Proyas fan, we talked about Dark City, and I managed to get a reference in this episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I've read the the actual Asimov. Uh, it's actually a bunch of short stories. It's not one novel. It's not one giant hero story with product placement. Um, <laughs> and um, iRobot is amazing. Um, I mean, I haven't read a lot of Asimov, though I heard that HBO may be making Foundation into a series, which would be very exciting. Um, but iRobot was really fascinating because these were robots that um, they were doing something wrong or unexpected, but for a very interesting reason. And so it'd be like there's this robot on this weird planet that's running in a crazy circle at like 80 miles an hour and they're like why <laughs> and uh they discover that you know this is where he popularizes the three laws of robotics the not uh either through direct action or through inaction causing harm to humans um it, no, not destroying itself and then i forget the third one um <laughs> i think that was the third one was that it couldn't commit suicide but um they, they found out in this example where the robot that was running in a circle is that it was it had a conflict between um, doing its mission and self-preservation and one of the other laws. And like the, the exact path it was running was perfectly encountering the different laws at different times. So it was this crazy behavior. Um, so it was behaving logically but unexpectedly and just those kind of puzzles and that's that book is full of those in, in five or so short stories. And then the film was just like this sort of Hollywood action romp. <laughs> nope. and it was like, yeah, the yeah. film was, nope, thanks. Yeah, I think, you know, between Asimov and then obviously Philip K. Dick, they've definitely explored so much of what it would mean to have robots as part of society and culture and you know again like it always comes to that point where like yeah but at some point they're going to figure out they don't need humans and they'll kill us all right (laughs) Uh, that's just you know the logical conclusion of a machine right and then james cameron took that too you know and creates basically the slasher horror film but just with a robot instead of a, a monster one of the appeals to in my childhood um was I was an only child, which we've rehearsed on this uh, broadcast a couple of times, uh, and uh, it's it's boring uh, as a topic. However, uh, you know, as as someone who spent a lot of hours by myself, I had time to reflect upon my interest in robots, and you know, what if I had a robot friend, or what if I had a robot baseball team, and and so I I had this uh, attachment to. Uh, robots as a, a potential benevolent force. Not, I, I didn't see them as angry invaders ready to, 
you know, harvest the earth for an, you know, another planet's uh, survival. Uh, that that theme as a as a uh, you know part of a alien invasion robot characterization didn't appeal to me. So if if there were other movies like that in the seventies uh, and eighties, I probably missed them uh, because I, I was you know for instance the 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 version of the War of the Worlds that uh, Spielberg did um, it it kind of left me cold because it it it. It wasn't the, the the world I envisioned. You know, my aliens are 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 going to be benevolent, and that's why expectation and so forth. You do remember Short Circuit, though, right? I do. <laughs> Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> I watched it recently just for nostalgia's sake, and I wish I hadn't. It's one of the worst films of all time. <laughs> just I can't believe how bad it was, and. That's all. Every review and commentary I saw was people saying, "Yeah, I remember. I saw this as a kid. It was great." But no. Um, so like, that, how did this get made? I can't remember if there was a kid in Short Circuit, but um, that's another category of um, whether it's ET with an alien or just robot companions for kids. And I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the Iron Giant um, as a, a very good example of that. And that's Brad Bird operating before he would go and work with Pixar and work on mission impossible and other films. Um, and, uh, just telling the story, a very personal story of a boy and his robot. And obviously, you know, in the iron giant that blows up to the world doesn't understand that he has this giant metal robot that could break things. Um, and, and wants to, you know, steal it or destroy it or study it or whatever. Um, there's another just bizarre TV series in the in the eighties called Small Wonder. Uh, I don't know, Dad, if you ever remember this. It's about this little boy and his robot sister, and you know she lives in his closet, and he goes and flips to the switch in her back every day, and then they go out and they experience you know little kid things, elementary school fist, you know schoolyard fights, etc. Uh, but just really. You know, standings out again as that boy and his companion robot. You know, in this case, it was a girl, so it was a big, you know, difference in assigning gender to robots, and that's a whole. I feel like you get into a whole episode of that, um, which even really could kind of lead directly into, you know, the most the newest robot movie out there right now. It just came out is Ex Machina, um, which totally explores all of those kind of philosophical approaches and literally it's just the turing test which we hadn't brought up um just yet but you know the turing test is that proof of ai of or does it think that it's a sentient thing or is it still have that you know barrier towards it's still a computer you know um but yeah and then they assign kind of gender roles to it and kind of goes wild from there uh, but definitely worth checking out for any robot fan. Yeah, and just commenting as a layman, I think um, I would love for someone as an expert to correct us or correct me, but one of the things I think is fascinating about AI research is kind of the more we discover about human brains, it's it's kind of like disturbing how actually we're finding out how robotic we are rather than how um, we can make robots, you know, have a soul or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just little facts like you, your body starts to move to react before the thought of what you're doing happens in your brain. It's like the thought is just describing what your body did automatically and just weird little things like that. Computer brains. Well, how about my anecdote about uh, my Christmas present one year? 
um, looking looking out over uh, uh, my porch on Christmas Eve and realizing a, a, a package had been left, and it was music for robots, which we perhaps had ordered months earlier, and uh, we figured it had just been lost or something. And there it was. And on, on Christmas Eve, maybe 1963, uh, I, I went online and found music for robots again, so it still exists. Only you know, it's it's uh, digital. It was really just a ridiculous album of, uh, of beeps and and uh, you know metallic sounds scraping. And <laughs> but I loved it. It was like, <laughs> oh, really? This is music for robots. And uh, I'm looking at the album art on it, and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's in the show notes already, uh, but. Uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, created by the the fellow who was editor of uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was a monthly journal that had you know articles on the makeup that the Wolfman had and Lon Chaney's day, that sort of stuff. But uh, he knew his audience, and he knew that this ten uh, year old in uh, Akron, Ohio, would would relish getting this album. And you know, my 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 father and mother were. They thought I was crazy, you know, because they listened to, you know, what is this thing? <laughs> and, uh, and what is that blue thing, you know? Uh, but uh, I enjoyed it. It was, it was kind of a, a magical evening because it was sort of like God has sent me this album that I've wanted for so long and left it on the porch <laughs> on New Year's Eve in the snow. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm grateful for, for getting it. Uh, but uh, I, I do have very positive associations with with robots from the fifties and sixties, even though they become uh, much more treacherous and uh, untrustworthy in later movies. I think it's always because they make them look like humans. Uh, it's always a major decision, which I'm always curious. You know, in kind of the justification of why would we make them look like humans? You know, like what is the like, do don't we want a separation within their function? And you know they are not a human. Why are we making them look like one? Yeah. Uh, what you know, unless that's the best use of their function, like getting around the place, it makes sense. Oh, put them on two legs, etc. Um, well, I was just always curious of kind of like you know dramatically. I understand that gets great drama for us if we like the mystery over like. You know, even like in Blade Runner, is it a robot? Is it not a robot? The Turing test, etc. Um, but that's something we want to do with things. You know, if it does get an intelligence and we're able to communicate with it, then it becomes one of us, right? And I guess we need to accept that. Um, one recent robot example that they it's absolutely not humanoid at all, which is really refreshing. I just really loved how they did robots in Interstellar, which you guys can yeah. sound off on. Yeah, I agree. And and they, they're, at least the, the lead robot is more or less a, uh, uh, a rectangle that can walk. <laughs> <laughs> Walking rectangle, yeah. <laughs> and they, so. they, they're very coy about the different ways they can transform and roll and walk and run and <clears throat> gallop, but... Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, they they're they're in the trope of the the comic relief, but they also play a heroic role in helping humans survive themselves, in a sense. Right, which is you know always <clears throat> uh, the role that they're born to play. I think 
And uh, I'll be surprised if Robbie doesn't make a comeback at some point. And, uh, you know, apparently there is a possible reboot of Lost in Space for one of the uh, premium channels. And I hope that that does happen and they treat it more respectfully than the movie did. And even the the series itself became became a parody of itself after Mm -hmm. a while. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a great, you know, story to tell. I I can envision like eight part miniseries version of it, you know, where it's just really satisfying exploration of like, here is, you know, a space traveling mission gone wrong. And now we have to, you know, get home and, you know, simple premise, but like to, for somebody just to do it well and do it with, you know, modern technology and stuff like that, you know, you'd like to see cool people involved in the project. Yeah, that's almost speaking to the promise of a sequel to Prometheus. Yeah, that'll come as much as the sequel to Blade Runner's coming, apparently. Yeah. So. Well, my my favorite robotic shape is very boxy and, you know, arms <laughs> that can extend, but there's just, you know, kind of hooks on the end that he can grasp things with. I mean, he's... I guess he looks like a Lego character, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I appreciate... That I don't want him to look human, and I don't want his exploits in collaboration with with me uh, to be as uh, uh, awkward and uh, primitive uh, as uh, some of the movies de- depict it. And I uh, I would I would appreciate any future screenplays that uh, the take the robot hood of robots uh, into effect and don't overplay the uh, AI part of it. Yeah. And I think I feel like Star Wars got a lot of this right because yeah, you have your your more sentient robots, but there's plenty that are, you know, they're just the moisturizer robot or the not like in the beauty product sense, but <laughs> like part of farming or um, you know maintenance robots. There's little mousy droids that kind of like they're probably just Roombas on the Death Star. And <laughs> yeah, and like most of Wally as well took yeah major inspiration from right. Well, I look forward to, uh, again, writers and and directors we've talked about, uh, like Ryan Johnson and and others, who uh, understand the genre, understand the motion picture technology that can be used, uh, not so much to make it more human, uh, like like don't don't create a series and call it almost human. I, I don't want that <laughs> to be the the focus of the of the partnership. Uh, and when it does, then you, you've cheapened both of the relationships, uh, human to android and, and vice versa. I just had one closing question in general of if you think we'll see in our lifetimes any kind of homemade companion robot thing that becomes the next Apple, probably. <laughs> With you know. physicality, not just like some... Siri kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you see these, you know, videos from Japan all the time over, you know, like, here's the new latest amazing walking robot that could do stuff for you, you know, it can vacuum for you, you know, whatever, but um, when does that become reality? Does it become reality? Is it just kind of fun? Yeah, um, well, you know, there there is the, the, the movie, which is not real impending science, obviously, is Robot and Frank, which kind of explores uh, a little bit of that phenomenon but um well i i hope so i mean i hope there is such a such an inventor out there and i think that's the sort of thing it will be it'll be an inventor who uh you know is off in montana somewhere who's been working on this most of his life 
and uh, not something that comes out of General Electric or General Motors as we were talking about it. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hope it it, it does happen, and uh, you know, depending <laughs> depending upon you know how much it will cost, I'd rather get one of those than be the first mission to Mars. So. <laughs> well, my only comment on it is just kind of seeing how quickly self-driving cars will be catching on within like five years even they're talking about, which is as wild to me. Like, Yeah, I think the new Tesla can even, you, you press a button, it can pull around the corner to pick you up, basically. Um, you know, very simple starting place. And we've seen these cars that can do parallel parking for you. And so, you know, as soon as they get really reliable, um, I, mem- I remember seeing a tweet that was like, wait, you guys used to drive these yourselves and it was okay? And the answer is no, millions of people died. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Exciting times. Robots. Brought to you by the Robot Parade. And with that, we have episode eight of Some Pulp. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can find show notes and links to everything we talked about at sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp slash eight. And uh, while you're there, be sure to subscribe so that new episodes are delivered straight to your phone or other device. Uh, Just use the iTunes or RSS buttons. And uh, if you're on Android, you can use Pocket Cast as a great app. Or if you're on an iPhone, there's a built-in podcast app, which works great. Um, While you're there in iTunes, uh, you could leave us a review and a rating, and we would love that. And uh, if you're really inclined to directly support us, you can head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sunrise robot. Um, and a shout out to our top Patreon supporters, Bruce Edwards and Andreas Lunga. Uh, without you guys, this, uh, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>